Welcome. Thank you, everybody, for being here on this very important day, um, the anniversary of Title IX. This is the 40-year anniversary, which is why we're here today. And we're expecting a very exciting and lively uh, discussion about the state of Title IX. Um, for those of you uh, who want to know the preamble, where Title IX started, again, 40 years ago, uh, President Nixon put it into place. And uh, the preamble to Title IX, it reads as follows. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any educational programs or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So that's, that's what the law says. And we're going to go into the details of it as we go through this discussion. We have four fabulous panelists here to, uh, to present different aspects of the uh, Title IX. But for me personally, I wanted to sort of open with, I was, I was thinking about Title IX and what it means to us now in 2012. Um, I was an athlete in school and uh, now as a female business owner, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that there were a lot more options when you looked at academically what we could do as women um, when I was in high school and college. And I was, I was remembering back to uh, the early 1980s as a young girl in the kitchen with my mother. And I was helping her make dinner. And uh, one of my brothers toddled in the room and said, Mom, can I help cook? And I turned to him and I said, boys do not cook. Boys don't belong in the kitchen. To which my mother, who is a very calm, in fact, I asked her to come today because I told her I'd be talking about her, <laughs> normally a very calm and staid woman, practically levitated right there in the kitchen <laughs> and called my other three brothers, said, line up, we are doing cooking lessons, all of you. And I have a, a chef brother to thank today <laughs> as a result. So, and, and at the time, you know, in 1972, uh, and I actually called my father to talk to him about this this morning, my, in 1972, my father was in medical school, uh, and my mother was on her way to medical school when she met my father, but at that time, it was a very different landscape. I said, Dad, you know, what was it like in 1972 as a med student? And he said, well, we had a class of about 200, four of them were women. And I said, okay, well, did you experience or see, witness any sexism? And he laughed and said, are you kidding me? He said, sexism and sexist language was a rule. It was not an exception. And in neurology and neurosurgery, which the field my father was in, he said women were not considered. I mean, it, it, he said it was, there was an absolute bias towards women in technical careers. Um, and the landscape has changed a lot. Now, why has the landscape changed? And we'll talk a lot about this. A lot of it we could point to Title IX. But there's also been cultural shifts in this country, and there's sort of, a, a, I think, a marriage of the two that, that make a big difference. And again, the discussion today is about where we are 40 years later, and are laws like Title IX an important part of, of advancement for women and men? Um, so it's hard to imagine 40 years ago what was the state of affairs uh, for women in particular, and we'll, we'll talk about this in the context of men as well. Women couldn't have a credit card with their name on it, which would be a huge problem in my family, to be frank. Um, we were not allowed to operate crosswalks, or uh, at the time it was projectors, because those were seen as skills that men had better than women. Happy to pass those on to the men, but uh, you know, there's other, other matters we, we did not appreciate. Um, there were no scholarships for women athletes. Uh, there were, and very few women could be accepted into a lot of universities. And uh, girls were relocated to playing uh, square dancing instead of doing any kind of athletics in, in the, in the educational settings. 
Um, what women faced was a lot of homophobia in the athletic fields, uh, discrimination, racism. Uh, again, some of this has been a cultural shift to 2012, and some of it we could point potentially to Title IX. Um, but women, in terms of the athletic field in particular, women were forced to have car washes and find way and to make their own uniforms, use their, their gym suits in order to have athletic teams. And so what we're looking at at 2012 is a very, very different landscape. Um, Patsy Mink was one of the three women who came together to try to, to, to pass legislation around, 20, around Title IX. Um, she, at the time, dreamed of becoming a doctor, but none of the 20 universities that she had applied to would accept women. Um, and Catherine Switzer, um, well, actually, this is a different story I'm going to tell you in just a second. I was trying to find my other ladies. They're in here somewhere. But anyway, so they came forward and they pushed for, uh, for this Title IX legislation, and thanks to them, you know, we're looking at a, a drastic, drastic change in terms of women and not only athletics, but also in the STEM fields. And again, this is part of what we're going to talk about today. Um, in the athletic realm, which I think is really important, um, women have seen probably the biggest jump. We've seen a 904% increase in the number of collegiate participation. Uh, sorry, in collegiate participation, we've seen a 556% increase. That 904% increase is in high school sports. Um, but in the STEM fields, I find that is actually what is a little bit more profound. Um, women now comprise nearly 60% of all undergraduates. And again, we can talk about what that means in the context of men and women. Um, and we're actually almost half of all the medical and law degree students, or uh, legal field degrees as well. So we've seen a, a drastic jump. Um, I'm going to leave it to our experts here to kind of go into, to dive deeper into the athletic as well as the scientific implications of this. But I want to talk a little bit about where we are today, because um, again, these, these ladies are going to talk about the big leaps and bounds that we've made. Um, today, boys continue to earn more credits in the physics, computer information science, and engineering degrees more than women. Um, in 2003 and 2004 academic year, men were still three-quarters of the students enrolled in uh, technology and, and computer sciences fields. Um, and while women are still make up, again, that 60% of undergraduate degrees, they're only 19% of physics programs, 22% uh, of master's and doctorate degrees in engineering and, and electronics. Um, and just anecdotally, there's a couple of things I wanted to share with you about what I've heard in terms of the Title IX, and we'll again go into the details of how they regulate and, and look at Title IX. But at the University of Maryland um, last year, they went in and did uh, an assessment of their programs, and they were looking at their aerospace and aeronautics program. And while they saw, gosh, you really are on par and really have addressed a lot of the issues that have to do with gender equality, um, they discovered that the spacesuits didn't fit the women. They were ginormous <laughs> spacesuits made for men, and so the women couldn't fit into the spacesuits. A subtle thing, but an interesting, an interesting discovery as they were assessing their Title IX capabilities. Additionally, at Notre Dame University, there was a particular class that they were having trouble keeping students enrolled in. And as they looked at the, again, through their Title IX assessments, they looked at the class structure they discovered that actually reordering the classes, meaning that the students came later in their term, so for junior year instead of sophomore year, enrollment went up drastically for both men and women. So the implications of Title IX, I think, is important to understand. It's not just about women. 
Um, it's actually about men. The other interesting fact is that it's not just about athletics, and it's not even just about STEM programs. It's also about, it, or it was intended to protect women who were pregnant or could become pregnant. Um, and it de dealt with sexism as well, which is, was, again, a much more accepted and, and rampant aspect of, of the educational fields. So uh, the discussion today is really about where we are now. Is Title IX uh, an appropriate and necessary um, part of our, of our laws and lawmaking right now? And, and really what it means and what it has done historically. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our panelists. And, um, and following their presentations, we're also going to open it up to questions. So hold on to your questions for the end, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll field them to the, the panelists here. So first, I have Sabrina Schaefer. And Sabrina and I have had the joy of actually appearing on Fox together, which has been really fun. Um, she's the executive director of the Independent Women's Forum. And prior to joining IWF, she's been in a lot of different communications roles. She was a managing partner as well at Evolving Strategies, speechwriter for Senator George uh, Vavoinovich, say that five times fast, I don't even know if I can, uh, from Ohio, and uh, Director of Media Relations and Public Affairs of the Republican Jewish Coalition in D.C. Um, as I mentioned, she has been uh, on many different news outlets, uh, including Fox, she writes for Politico, she's a pundit also for The Hill. We have a lot of UVA grads here today. She's also <laughs> has a master's in politics from uh, University of Virginia and, uh, and, and American history at UVA. Um, so, and I would go through their extensive bios, but you can also access them online because they're so amazing that we would be here all day. Um, Adele Kimmel. There you are, Adele. Um, is the managing attorney at the DC headquarters of public justice. She has served as counsel. Now, Adele is very new because she's worked very directly with Title IX, and I thought this was very interesting. She served as counsel in a wide variety of precedent-setting cases, uh, in particular emphasis on civil rights uh, and, and civil rights issues. She uh, has done tort cases on behalf of immigrant detainees and prisoners. She has done Title IX sex discrimination class action on behalf of women intercollegiate athletes, uh, retaliation cases on behalf of intercollegiate coaches for Title IX, and employment discriminations based on race and nation of origin uh, for Title VII. And uh, on Title VI has done uh, race discrimination class action for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So again, her resume also goes on and on, but I think it's particularly relevant today are those points. Um, Neil McCluskey is uh, a native to the Cato Institute. He is the associate director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato. And before that was in the U.S. Army, um, was also a high school English teacher, which you should get 12 gold stars for that more than anything. I gave them to myself. You gave them. <laughs> uh, and was also a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. We'll forgive you for that. No, the New Jersey thing. No, I'm just teasing. Um, and uh, he is a policy analyst for the, recently for the Center for Education Reform and has done a lot of work in the educational sphere as well. Also has appeared on C-SPAN, CNN, Fox News, um, is a Georgetown University grad and a PhD from George Mason University. And then Deborah, Deborah Rolson is, heads the Advanced Electrochemical Materials Section of the NRL, which I made her define, another DC acronym, the Naval Research Laboratories, um, where she, her research is focused on multifunctional nanoarchitectures for such rate-critical applications as, okay, yeah, this is the most technical, amazing. <laughs> Let's just say she is a top-notch scientist. 
Um, but she's also uh, an adjunct professor of chemistry at the University of Utah and was a faculty scholar at Florida Atlantic University, received a PhD in chemistry, and was a is a fellow at the American Association for the Advancement of Science and Association for Women in Science. So she has a very technical and amazing scientific background, and you guys can speak to that as well as you're up here. So I'm going to hand it over. Is Sabrina, are you going to kick it off? I, I think I am. Great. All right. All right. Take it away. <laughs> well, thank you, Marjorie. I really appreciate the introduction and the introduction to Title IX and our bios, and thank you, Neil, for putting this together. Um, I know it's never as simple as it seems to find a panel of people who want to discuss an issue, so appreciate this and for Cato to, to host this. Um, on anniversaries like this, there is a tendency to do a lot of celebrating. <clears throat> there was a Senate hearing yesterday. Um, Billie Jean King was there celebrating Title IX. The White House Council on Women and Girls today at 2 o'clock has a big um, celebration as well. Tomorrow, the Center for American Progress is also holding an event all um, advocating for Title IX. Um, so I'm really glad that Cato has decided to do something a little bit different in which we have a variety of viewpoints um, because the fact is that there are, um, as Marjorie suggested, some, some possible very you know, good things that may have come out of Title IX, but there is also some serious limitations to this law, some unintended consequences that have <coughs> resulted from it. Um, as Marjorie sort of implied, it's not simply about women. This is also about men, and there's a lot to discuss in that realm. So while I think the goal of Title IX was a noble one, um, the idea being to outlaw, outlaw discrimination in educational institutions based on gender, um, the problem is in how it's been applied. And it may surprise some people in this room to learn that in many instances, Title IX has done exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. It has, in effect, imposed quotas and imposed gender preferences um, at colleges and universities and now at the high school level as well. The reality is that between 1981 and 2005, men's athletic teams per school dropped by 17%, while female teams increased by 34%. And, and the reason is this. The proportional participation clause, which is tucked away in the bill, um, it states that if the number of female athletes is not proportional to the number of, of females um, or women enrolled at the institution, then the school is technically discriminating. Um, so I think that this little line is often overlooked, uh, but it is extremely significant. Um, it means that in order to balance the gender scales and in order to avoid government harassment, uh, loss of funding, lawsuits, colleges and universities simply eliminate men's sports opportunities. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, the largest Title IX cuts happened right here in the region at James Madison University in 2007. They cut 10 men's teams, um, including cross-country gymnastics, track, um, swimming, and a variety of others. More recently, the University of Delaware cut its men's track and cross-country program. Liberty University cut men's wrestling, which is one that's frequently um, cut because there just isn't the same interest in wrestling on, on, you know, by women. Um, UNC Greensboro, also wrestling. University of Nebraska cut wrestling and football. Truman State cut men's golf. Um, and I think this one is particularly interesting. The University of Maryland recently uh, cut their track and field um, team. And as it turns out, the track and field coach at the University of Maryland will be the coach um, at the summer's Olympics for the, man, the men's Olympics track and field coach. Um, he will be the only coach that does not have a team back here at home as a result of Title IX. Um, to give it even a little bit bigger perspective, uh, from 1981 to 2005, male athletes per school declined by 6%, while female athletes increased by almost six times that. 
Um, so the total number of women's teams has exceeded the number of men's teams since 1995. I think there are, I'm sure, some people in this room who think that is a good thing, but um, I don't think that gender equality comes from pitting one um, sex against the other. So under this view of Title IX, men's athletics have become dependent on women's interests and women's participation in the same sports. And I don't think that we, any of us would agree that that's really progress or that we're really moving toward gender equality when that's the way that we're operating. Um, so my largest concern with Title IX at this point is less um, what's happened um, than where it could potentially go. And... Um, I'm sure Deborah will, will share more, but the, the notion of Title IX-ing the STEM fields, um, and this is, this is the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics known as STEM. Um, so despite the fact that men and women are, are different, that we have different interests and aptitudes and preferences, um, many feminist groups on the left, um, the White House and lawmakers, through their Educate to Innovate campaign, have been using the anniversary of Title IX to advance the next battle and what I see as sort of the gender wars, um, increase the number of women represented in these STEM fields. Um, and now we sort of talk, in fact, about Title IX-ing STEM. But the alarmism has been increasing over the last, I'd say, decade. Um, and in 2007, the National Academies released Beyond Bias and Barriers. It's fulfilling the potential of women in academic science and engineering. In 2010, the American Association of University Women published Why So Few Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Um, last week, the National Coalition for Women and Girls to, in Education issued yet another report, Title IX, Working to Ensure Gender Equity in Education, um, which again pushes lawmakers to direct more attention, more resources toward strengthening Title IX and toward applying it toward the STEM fields. So, of course, I should, you know, to be... To be fair, some of this is based in reality. It's absolutely true that women are inclined toward degrees in art history, in biology, in English, in education, and men are overrepresented in, in computer science, in engineering, in math, and in certain subsets of those hard sciences, um, especially computer programming, women are, are dramatically underrepresented. In fact, um, there is a, an interesting article I've read. <laughs> There's a class at Harvard, I think it's called Math 55, um, it's sort of, you know, in the beginning of the year, there's many, many people are included, and the numbers quickly, you know, drop off. And at the end, the Harvard Crimson did sort of an evaluation of who actually takes this class. It's extremely demanding. And it, the class was divided. 50% were Jewish, 50% were Asian, and 100% were male. Um, so there was a question, you know, what is it that's causing so many uh, men to go into these areas and so few women? I can't imagine that at Harvard where you're going to have some of the brightest um, women, you know, students that you're going to, that we're going to say that there's some kind of intellectual disparity here. Um, but I think that the picture that sometimes feminist groups on the left like to paint make our colleges and universities seem truly hostile toward women. And I think that it's, you know, this is something that has caught on in the culture. Donna Shalala, president of the University of Miami, former secretary of health and human services under President Clinton, um, she's spoken very publicly about the hostile climate women face in the academy, the crisis that, um, that exists in the, in the STEM fields, and the need to sort of transform all academic institutions. Um, and I think that this is an unfortunate way of looking at our higher education system. The fact is, um, women today are out earning men in terms of bachelor's degrees, in terms of master's degrees, and even in terms of PhDs now <laughs> when you look at, at um, degrees in the humanities. 
As Marjorie mentioned, roughly 50% of medical students are, are women. Uh, veterinary classes are comprised of, on average, about 75% women. Um, so we're really talking about a subset of the hard sciences, and I think it's important to keep that in perspective so that we don't continue to perpetuate this idea that, that the universities and colleges um, are so aggressively hostile toward women. Um, still, advocates today are using our down economy as leverage to help expand Title IX into academics. And while national unemployment hovers around 8%, um, workers employed in the STEM fields have more job opportunities and higher paying jobs. And this is proving to be increasingly the justification for why we need more government to help guide women's choices. President Obama has put forth the goal of adding 100,000 STEM teachers. He's launched Change the Equation, which is a private-public partnership also aimed at collaborating government and private efforts to engage more um, students into the STEM fields. Um, and so while I think we all can agree that women are underrepresented in certain disciplines, it's important to emphasize that the reason for this is not one-dimensional. And in fact, the physical sciences tend to be the exception and not the rule. Um, but unfortunately, I think that sometimes the conversation doesn't seem as though it has evolved since Title IX was first enacted. And we're still talking about um, all of this in the context of gender discrimination and in terms of sexism, rather than acknowledging the larger, larger conversation that's taking place. Um, there is a robust conversation about this, and it includes things about social, cultural, biological factors, all of which may play a role in why fewer women are represented. Uh, one in particular, Simon Baron Cohn, a professor of um, developmental psychopathology at Trinity College in Cambridge, he's talked about the way that men and women sort of organize the world. Men are more inclined towards systematizing, while women are uh, more inclined to empathize. This may help explain, for instance, why we see so many more men going into surgery rather than pediatrics, for, um, for example. Um, but the reality is that if we were to apply Title IX to academics and tie gender to the classroom, we have the potential to devastate academic science. I think that many people in this room today would recognize that college campuses have in many ways been refashioned into sort of political experiments, and the sciences have been the exception here. Um, but if we expand Title IX into the STEM disciplines, I think that we would see a, a dramatic change. Athletics and academic science are like apples and oranges. Um, reasons for, for playing sports are, are you know, to develop physical skills and confidence, um, school spirit. But the goal of science is to advance knowledge, and it is essential to our national and our economic security. So I'll just wrap up by saying that accepting gender differences and recognizing that men and women have different preferences and strengths um, doesn't diminish the value of having strong female role models in the sciences. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't acknowledge when a company like IBM promotes um, a woman to be CEO. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't applaud a science-based company for a flexible work policy that encourages more women. These are all good things. But I think that we need to recognize that the goalposts, for some reason, keep moving. And it's no longer sufficient to have gender equality. We now seem to have to need gender parity in all walks of life. And I think that that is, um, that is the, the true problem of sort of the premise of this whole conversation. I'm going to stand up. Now, I know it's going to uh, take a minute for this to load because I'll be doing a PowerPoint, but um, let me start by saying it's probably clear from Marjorie's introduction of me and the work I do in Title IX representing intercollegiate athletes and coaches 
that my view of Title IX is going to differ a little bit from Sabrina's. <laughs> there we go. Um, before I offer my perspective on Title IX, I'd like to ask all of you a question. And, um, and I'm going to ask you to give me a show of hands. But how many people here think that our girls and boys should have equal educational opportunities? Don't be shy. <laughs> OK, and now is there anyone here who thinks our girls and boys should have unequal educational opportunities? All right, we found common ground already. <laughs> well, in essence, I want to make sure that this is working. Great. In essence, Title IX was passed to ensure equal educational opportunities for male and female students. That's what it's about. And Marjorie described what the statute says. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And in short, what this means is that any school that receives federal taxpayer dollars cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. It, it really is as simple as that. So what does Title IX cover? Well, as Marjorie pointed out and Sabrina pointed out, it covers all federal, uh, federally funded education programs, not just athletics. And so, for example, it covers college admissions. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that just eight years before I attended the University of Virginia, yes, there are a couple of us here, <laughs> um, women were not admitted to that school. Title IX also applies to the courses made available to students at all levels of education. And again, when I was in middle school, I had to take home economics to learn cooking and sewing. And the boys at my junior high school had to take woodshop. And Title IX has helped to remove those barriers. And you see the list of other things that Title IX applies to. So it's not all about athletics. But, but why is it that when we talk about Title IX and we read about Title IX, so much attention is focused on sports? Well, there is an explanation for that. And that is because only sports are sex segregated. And that's why there is so much scrutiny on athletic activities in particular. Now, because the work that I do at Public Justice in the Title IX arena focuses on athletics, that's what I'm going to focus on today. And specifically, I'd like to set the record straight and debunk some of the widespread myths that I think are out there about Title IX and athletics. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what Title IX actually requires. With respect to athletics, Title IX requires three things. One, equal opportunity to participate in sports. Two, fair shares of athletic scholarship money. And three, equal benefits and services in the athletic programs. And those are things like um, access to coaches, locker rooms, um, what equipment you have, how games and um, practices are scheduled, things of that nature. And I'm going to focus most specifically on the participation opportunities, because that's been um, a major focus of what's been going on. Um, one of the biggest myths, and it's one that um, apparently sub Sabrina subscribes to, is um, that Title IX requires quotas. Um, the fact is that Title IX does not require quotas. 
It simply requires that schools allocate participation opportunities in a manner that is not discriminatory. And there is actually a three-part test for determining whether schools are in compliance with Title IX. And this is a test that was originally promulgated by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Now that's the Department of Education. It's the Office for Civil Rights that enforces this. So there are three parts to this test. And there are three ways that, three different ways, not just one way, for schools to show that they're in compliance. One is that um, schools can show they're in compliance by providing athletic participation opportunities for male and female students in numbers that are substantially proportional to their respective enrollments. Or a school can show it's in compliance by showing that it's made continued efforts to expand the athletic opportunities for the underrepresented sex, which is typically women. Or three, a school can demonstrate that it's fully and effectively accommodating the athletic interests and abilities of the underrepresented sex, which again is typically women. Now, it's this first part of the three-pronged test, the substantial proportionality part, that um, seems to have Title IX <coughs> opponents getting apoplectic and saying that it's a quota system. But again, I want to emphasize that there are three different ways, not one way, of showing that there's compliance with Title IX. And contrary to popular belief, schools do not always choose the first prong, the substantial proportionality test, to show that they are in compliance with Title IX. For example, between 1994 and 1998, of the 74 Title IX participation cases that were handled by the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, less than one-third of the schools, 21 to be exact, chose the substantial proportionality prong as the method for showing that they were in compliance. Another myth about Title IX is that the education department in this three-part test has pushed Title IX beyond the language of the statute. And again, the fact is that every single federal court of appeals has upheld the three-part test as consistent with Title IX's language and goals. And at, at, I think at last count, it's nine federal courts of appeals to uphold this. And not a single one has said that it imposes a quota system. Another big myth about Title IX is that it forces men to cut, forces schools to cut men's sports. This is not true. Schools have chosen to eliminate certain sports including men's wrestling, men's tennis, men's gymnastics, as one way of bringing them into compliance with Title IX, but they have other options. For example, instead of cutting men's teams, schools could control their bloated football and basketball budgets, which account for a whopping 80% of Division I FBS schools' total men's athletic expenses. And in fact, some schools have chosen that ch have chosen to cut men's teams to comply with although some schools have chosen to cut men's teams to comply with Title IX, most schools have not. A 2001 GAO study found that 72% of the schools that added teams from 1992 to 2000 did so without cutting any teams at all. And the fact is that since 1998 
the number of men's college sports teams has increased by 522. So while some men's teams have been cut, the net outcome of the added and dropped men's teams is that men's teams in college have increased by 522. And in fact, in the academic year 2010 to 2011, more women's teams were dropped than men's teams. 69 women's teams were dropped, 59 men's teams were dropped. The last myth I'd like to address today is that women aren't all that interested in sports. And to um, steal from Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update, I just want to say, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> Title IX is a real-world example of fields of dreams. If you build it, she will come. And after Title IX, girls' and women's participation in sports skyrocketed. Let's take a look at the participation rates for girls and women in high school and college sports before Title IX and since then. So in 1972, when Title IX was passed, just over 294,000 females participated in high school sports. In 2011, that number increased to 3 million. Yes, you heard me correctly, 3 million. So women aren't that interested in sports, really? T tell that to the additional 2.7 million high school girls who are now participating in sports since Title IX passed. And you'll note from this chart, too, that women's participation in college sports has increased since the passage of Title IX. And I think it's also important to note that the participation of men in high school and college sports has increased since the passage of Title IX. So again, despite cutting some men's teams, and schools have chosen to do that, the participation of men in sports has increased since the passage of Title IX. So what are some of the benefits of Title IX and participation in women's sports? Well, girls who play high school sports are 20% more likely to graduate and 20% more likely to attend college. In addition, a study done by a Princeton economist found that Title IX and high school sports participation is responsible for a 10% increase in women working full-time and a 12% spike in women participating in traditionally male-dominated occupations, such as accounting, law, and veterinary medicine. I think this study's a little outdated because I would say it's more than 12%. And so finally, in, from my view, Title IX has made a positive change and a positive difference for women and girls. And so in my view, the 40th anniversary is indeed something to celebrate. Thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I want to, first of all, thank all our panelists for coming today. Uh, I especially want to thank Sabrina and IWF, who this was this was really their idea. Uh, they did a lot to help put it together, so a special thanks to them. And, and a special thanks to Marjorie Clifton coming today to moderate. Uh, I should also point out that as you, you might have noticed, the only male panelist, uh, I'm conducting something of a first-hand experiment in what it's like to be a gender minority or underrepresented. Uh, I have to say, so far, just so far, I don't feel like I'm experiencing stereotype threat. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but I should, because this is a female-dominated event, maybe along the lines of The View, something like that. I don't know. Uh, I should probably, as a result, be excessively nervous 
uh, and underperform because the assumption is that as a male, at least the stereotype, I should really just be sitting in front of the couch watching football and uttering kind of monosyllabic grunts. Uh, and maybe that will come. So hold on. Uh, but in all seriousness, on, on to Title IX. Uh, the first question that should be asked is whether in 1972 there was good evidence that Title IX was needed. Was there clear evidence of broad gender discrimination in federally funded education activities? And clearly there were disparities, and I think we've been over many of them. I'll just hit some very quickly. In 1972, women made up only 43% of college students, uh, 7% of high school athletes, and 15% of college athletes, clearly underrepresented. On college faculties, women constituted less than 10% of full professors in psychology, life sciences, social sciences, and many other areas. But the question that we need to ask is, why was there this underrepresentation? Was it mainly a function of outright, outright discrimination, of abilities, or of culture? And maybe, no doubt, all of those were at play. But I think culture is likely a big part of this. Most likely, people were self-selecting into different professions, into different educational options, in part based on or correlated with gender, but not because it was the only thing their gender legally allowed them to do. And there is evidence supporting this and belying the need for Title IX, and that is that college enrollment for women started taking off well before we had Title IX. Between 1947 and 1972, women's share of total enrollment in college was growing at a pace of 0.56 percentage points per year, rising from 29% in 1947 to 43.1 in 1972. In contrast, from 1972 and 2010, growth was only 0.37 percentage points per year, hitting 57% in 2010. Now, of course, you know, there's the problem of as you get bigger and bigger percentages, that growth is going to slow down. But the growth prior to 1972 really shows that something was happening long before there was this law, and most likely culture was changing. Of course, in 1972, there probably were blatant examples of outright gender discrimination, but I think that self-selection into what is called gendered roles was likely the more prevalent problem. So, of course, our, our main focus is the need and function of Title IX today. So today is there evidence of significant intentional discrimination. Again, we have disparities. Nobody's disagreeing with that, I don't think. So women still, for instance, make up then less than half of the full professoriate in many fields, and then some, like engineering, are but a tiny fraction. Women also are still not represented in college sports, even though there was big growth, but they're not represented in college sports relative to their share of total enrollment, constituting, again, 57% of total college enrollment, but only 43% of athletes. Again, those, those are raw numbers, and raw numbers are not sufficient to prove discrimination. There is almost certainly, again, major self-selection into these areas. Indeed, uh, as you read through a lot of the reports that have come out to coincide with the uh, anniversary of Title IX, you find that most of these groups who are advocates will even say, they will not argue that there's a great deal of outright discrimination, but instead unconscious sexism rooted in cultural assumptions. But unfortunately, much of this essentially you're guilty and don't even know it argument is based in at best unproven psychology. 
Most important, the idea of stereotype threat, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, and something called implicit association testing. So stereotype threat posits essentially that women, particularly it's used to see about mathematics performance. And they'll say that women do, don't do as well in some mathematics tests because essentially they get, uh, they get nervous taking them and hence do poorly. And the reason they're nervous is there's an assumption that women do less well and you get nervous because you really want to prove that wrong. But the nervousness causes you not to do as well. Um, but this has not really been borne out in the, in the experiments that are used to try and prove it. Um, so basically, what happens are you give a test, usually with men and women, and the first iteration, one group gets a test that starts with a statement that says, women don't do as well on this test as men do. Then you give the test to another group, and you give a statement that says, there is no, essentially there's no gender bias on this test. And what's found is that the women who get the loaded statement don't do as well as the men, and they don't do as well as the women in the other group. But the women in the other group who say there is no gender bias, they do very well, and they do just as well as the men do. But what that actually suggests is that stereotype threat is not a real-world problem unless most tests are prefaced with a gender-biasing statement. Mm -hmm. um, now, there, there are numerous other problems with the stereotype threat theory. I'm not going to get into all of them. Um, one of them is that the, the studies that are typically cited, there's been a lot of trouble replicating them. But regardless, the main problem is that it has, appears to have little connection to reality. The same holds true for implicit association testing. Now, you, you might have taken an IAT test. You can do it online. When you go home, give it a try. It's a fun activity for the whole family. Um, and if you've done that, you know what kind of a strange test it is. You're basically asked to associate words on a computer screen as fast as possible. Um, and the categories will shift throughout the test uh, in different iterations. And then if you wrongly associate terms when female is under science, and then they throw up terms you're supposed to put either with science and female or male uh, and liberal arts, um, then you're essentially identified as having some sort of implicit sexist bias. You basically rack up a lot of wrong answers. Of course, from, aside from the dubious nature of the test itself, I mean, all the switching that's involved, basically it confuses you, and it can be very loaded where you put different things at different times. But even if that is accurately assessing unconscious biases, even if our unconscious selves are a bit sexist, rarely does this translate into how we would do hiring or promotion. Nobody that I know of makes a hiring or promotion decision within a millisecond of being confronted with something. That would make no sense. And of course, in many cases, people have a great self-interest in hiring or promoting the right person because that reflects well on them. So the result of this is that Title IX tends to be based on an assumption of guilt and hence has a huge overemphasis on regulatory compliance. You know, do you have all the right gender equity officers? Do they do enough reviews? Are obnoxious frat boys swiftly punished? We'll talk about that in a second. So it does that rather than focusing on dealing with the situation or situations in which discrimination is real and proven. Indeed, proof actually rarely happens. According to, to a pro-Title IX National Academy of Science report, quote, in most sex discrimination cases that reach trial, universities win. Of course, now, most don't reach a trial. 
But part of that is because the accusation that comes from the Office of Civil Rights is itself the punishment. That's the bad PR for the school. The school is immediately on the defensive. Um, And it's expensive, if you're the school, to fight the federal government through courts. So what we often see is what Yale University just did was announced a few days ago. They were accused of having a hostile atmosphere toward women. And what they did is they didn't acknowledge any guilt. They agreed to more bureaucratic compliance without acknowledging, without admitting any guilt, and without any finding of guilt. They said, let's get this over with. We'll promise to do more reviews and things like that. It's essentially Title IX is a club that the federal government can wield really for browbeating purposes and for PR purposes. That's often how it's used. Um, It also lets the federal government, Uncle Sam, curb the rights of student and faculty accused of such things as harassment or even as bad as rape. The Office of Civil Rights says schools need only to have determined a preponderance of evidence indicates guilt. Now, of course, that's not how our court system works. You're innocent until proven guilty. But Title IX says from a school's perspective, you can throw someone out with much less than that. In fact, Title IX essentially requires that, because if you don't do that, you open yourself up for one of these investigations and with all the bad PR that goes with it. Uh, This is also, I think, why a seemingly common-sense way for colleges to meet one of the three measures of Title IX compliance in sports to demonstrate that a school is meeting female demand for sporting opportunities was recently eliminated. Of course, it only recently came into existence. So in 2005, the Office of Civil Rights allowed schools to administer surveys to women to try and judge their interest in participating in intercollegiate sports. Essentially, they did what was common sense. They asked them, do you want to have more opportunities to participate in college sports? But interest groups greatly disagreed with this, and in 2010, with the change of administration, this survey was eliminated. Why? Is it we don't think that the women were sufficiently motivated that they would answer the survey, that they would look for it, or are we afraid that they might not actually express the amount of of interest in sports that we are supposed to believe they have? So the fact of the matter is that there is no meaningful evidence of large-scale discrimination in federally funded education programs, only disparities it seems some people want to chalk up to others not knowing what they want or how sexist they may actually be. But with women now making up 57% of college enrollment, at the very least, any college that would systematically or even noticeably discriminate against women is putting itself at a huge disadvantage, cutting off the preponderance of students. That would be, for most institutions, crazy. Finally, Title IX, I think, is unconstitutional. For one thing, federal funding for education is unconstitutional. This, of course, is a whole new subject, which I'm happy to bring on, and we can laugh about it. But among the the enumerated powers in Article I, Section 8, the only powers the federal government has, there's nothing about education. And that's pretty clear, actually. But go beyond that. The 14th Amendment, under which something like Title IX can be justified, equal treatment under the law, it doesn't speak of protecting people from government based on group identity. It says no quote-unquote person shall be denied equal protection of the laws. So in two ways, this is unconstitutional. So Title IX turns 40 actually on Saturday. I know many of you have your, your cakes all ready to go. But it shouldn't be allowed to get any older. Thank you. <laughs> as did Adele, I will stand.
I'm a scientist, so we give talks with words and graphics and numbers and plots, so let's go. I'm going to talk about returning Title IX to its origins, which never said anything in the law about sports, and discuss it as a mechanism. And since it's a mechanism, there are also other mechanisms that can come into play to transform our higher educational climates. So on our upper left is the face of American science, technology, engineering, math department, and this is not from the 1950s. It's still too white, too male, too old. On the lower right is what you would see on any university's website in terms of the number and types of students they're trying to attract into their undergraduate class, highly diversified, male, female, and all racial and ethnic diversity. So how good can American science and engineering be when we're missing more than two-thirds of the talent? Because scientific ability is not just sequestered in the white male. And can we really claim American science is a meritocracy since we're missing so much talent, as especially represented on our faculty? And as Kathy Trower and Dick Chait at Harvard pointed out, who teaches matters? the ability of ethnic and racial minorities to perform in a classroom, and even women, pre-Title IX, matters with respect to who's on the faculty. So, what's the crux of the problem? And we've brought this up several times. We have culture interwoven everywhere. And in science, you have a departmental culture, and you have that within the broader scientific culture, and that, of course, intersects the broad societal culture. So the Wolf Laureate Qian Chung Wu, before she died, was asked, why has this, quote, problem of women in science not been solved? And she addressed the usual knee-jerk responses. It's not the faulty notion that women have no intellectual capacity. It's not the social economic factors, and these are gender-specific self-selected roles, or the work-life balance, or if you go into academic research, or even governmental federal lab research are not paid that well. No, she said it's none of these. The main stumbling block is and always has been an impeachable tradition. And she emigrated from China, so I think she knows something about tradition. So what is the tradition of Western science? And it's a world without women. Western science traces its origin to the monasteries and ecclesiastical schools a millennium plus ago. And the vestiges of that origin still cling to us. This round-the-clock scholarship is the ideal you expect. David Noble wrote a book about this in the 90s, and his cover is Dürer's Magnificent Adam and Eve, in which he's had Eve removed as the allegory for Western science, the world without women. Now, in the monasteries, somebody made you a meal once or twice a day, washed your clothes every six months. You really could devote yourself to scholarship. The modern equivalent is a wife. And, of course, most women don't have wives, and even most men who are going into science these days do not have the traditional wife. So the old world is not the new world. We are in the 21st century. So when you want to look about how do you change something as non-one-dimensional and integrated and complex as a culture and tradition, I like this uh, circle of life mechanistic, subversion, revolution, and climate change. Subversion is always in taste especially when you don't have any power. Revolution, particularly in the scientific world, you better have demonstrated your scientific street cred first before you stand up and be a revolutionary. And climate change is, I think, the most profound, I'll remind you of Thomas Jefferson, revolution now and then is good, 
climate change is the most profound. Its existence proves that there are ways other than round-the-clock gerbil uh, in the wheel to do science. But that takes decades to demonstrate. And in fact, I would counter that uh, by expanding the diversity of who does science in America, well, we've never done the control experiment. We've just had essentially white men doing it. So we have no evidence that science and American S&T won't be improved by incorporating our female and minority scholars. But you've got to know your territory, because that's how you attack tradition. And you do have to have a long view. And with respect to subversion, just as Adele was doing, you have to challenge the myths in your traditions. And I always recommend the thousands of students I've spoken to over the past 12 years to learn as much social psychology as you can, because then you can use it against the uh, fill in your favorite expletive. <laughs> All right, now why don't we go to lawsuits? And the prime example is the class action suit against the University of Minnesota, which was settled in 1980. It did not go to court. And a lot of money was passed out, particularly to lawyers. And Shyamal Rajender was the woman who initiated this because she'd asked to be put on the tenure-track faculty in the Department of Chemistry. And I'm a chemist. I do not mind beating up my own discipline. And the, de the department refused. The college refused. The university refused. She sued. And as people investigated, that's when it was expanded to a class action suit on behalf of all non-student women working in the entire university system. So it was settled before it went to court. Many scholars feel it was the most egregious example of discrimination. And she became a lawyer. She did not stay in science. And so the Department of Chemistry was ordered to hire women onto their tenure-track faculty. This was in 1980. So when I looked at the numbers in uh, 2000, 20 years later, they'd managed to hire three. So you settle a case that is as bad as it can be. You're given time to make improvements, and you manage to hire three women. And in the 12 years when there's been extreme attention on the lack of women on our faculty in the STEM departments, Minnesota has managed to come up to six women. We're all going to be dead before we actually incorporate the talent we train. So in 2000, I suggested it was time for a little revolution. And because I do work for the Naval Research Laboratory, I'm a federal employee. I signed an oath I would not overthrow the federal government. But I did not say anything about overthrowing the white male paradigm in science. I'd like you to know that these are my views, not the Department of Defense or the laboratories. And I actually take leave when I do these <coughs> activities, so no sponsor is charged for my time. So in 2000, I wrote an editorial that says, if you cannot hire the women you're churning out with PhDs, and other than physics and electrical engineering and a few other specialties, we actually are doing a great job of producing women with PhDs in the STEM fields, including mathematics. I said, isn't a millennium of affirmative action sufficient? And looked at Title IX as the mechanism. Of course, Title IX says nothing about sports. It was put in place to remove the quotas preventing women from going into the prof stocks or the professional schools like law and medicine, economics, business, and the un, shall we say, unwritten quotas in the STEM fields. And the nice thing about Title IX, it's 37 simple words. It's very encompassing. It says nothing about women or men. It's both. Is that you are allowed to look at data. And if there are statistical imbalances, Title IX may be invoked. But do remember that nobody, no athletic program, has lost federal funds because of Title IX violations. So let's look at Title IX working. And in 2005, two economists put together the degrees going to women in the STEM disciplines at the bachelor's, master's, PhD level. And 
pick your favorite um, subdiscipline, and you'll see increases of 50% or factors of two or three or orders of magnitude, factors of 20, 30. Once Title IX was gone, women not, earn, not only earned bachelor's degrees, they could finally move into the higher levels and earn master's and PhDs. But we're not hiring them onto our faculty. So in 2002, somebody mentioned in front of Ron Wyden's Senate subcommittee hearing that there's this woman in chemistry suggesting we apply Title IX. He started holding hearings. And then in 2004, in January, he and Barbara Boxer went to the General Accountability Office, the GAO, and said, do a quick study on faculty, not students. We want to report in six months. They received it in July. And of course, in six months, you can't talk to everyone. So they went to seven research-intensive universities, six DOE national labs, because that, of course, is a huge employment home for PhDs in the STEM. And they, in essence, said, we're putting billions of dollars every year out of the federal funding agencies into the universities. So we're not using Title IX. In fact, it's a regulatory obligation for the federal funding agencies to do Title IX oversight. So the agencies have now been told they have to do proactive, not reactive, complaint-initiated reviews. And of course, agencies need to talk together and decide how they're going to do these things, so it's going to be slow. NASA is the federal funding agency that is the most forward on these matters, but they still only have to do two proactive reviews a year. That's going to take a long time. I've given you the URL if you want to track how NASA is approaching Title IX compliance reviews. So let's go back to the feds are slow, homo sapiens is lazy, and the mechanistic circle of life. <laughs> so everybody in the educational world needs to keep learning. And implicit bias is there. It's real. Thank you. And our students know it. In general, as the level of prestige goes up, the number of women at the level goes down. So in 2000, some social psychologists went into Michigan elementary school students and asked them to imagine their life born a member of the other sex. Boys think about your life as girls. Girls think about your life as boys. So the girls saw real advantages to being born male, and these are what they said. Better jobs, more money, way more respect. And our young men know how the world works. 95% saw no advantage to being born female. So this wasn't 1950 or 1975. This was 2000. So there are real, if you will, sponge absorption of what our society values. And in general, we don't value women or minorities. So myths need to be busted. In our world, we still sort of look at the mathematical geniuses and musical geniuses who are young and tie the tenure clock to your productivity in those first six years or so as an assistant professor. If you want to buy the myth, if you're your most productive and creative when you're young, you've blown your wad. So you should fire all those people and bring in some young ones. That's not how we do it. And tenure, of course, severely crimps the young men and women who are starting their families. The 80-hour weeks, round-the-clock round garbage. Well, Marcia and Marianne Mason and Mark Golden did a survey of the University of California tenured faculty and said, self-report how many hours a week it takes you to do your job, teach office hours, work with your students, um, serve on committees. And the self-report was about 55 hours a week. So an academic research job is not a 40-hour week job, but it's not an 80-hour week job. And the only group doing more than 55 hours a week at 60 hours a week were women with no children. And since it was self-reported, you know they lied. So let's, let's trash the round-the-clock nonsense about that's the only way you can be serious about your science. And I love the Ernest Rutherford anecdote at 
the Cavendish Labs in the early 20th century, he would throw people out at six and say, go home, have a meal, spend time with friends, come back tomorrow morning refreshed and creative. And he popped in one night and found a young student, a young man at work. And he asked the student if he'd been working in the morning. And the young man expected to be commended for his devotion to science. Rutherford said, when do you think? And I like to encourage the students to uh, counter the, oh, I had to work till 2 in the morning on my experiment, or I had to work 14 days straight. The response should be, I'm sorry you're so inefficient at doing your science. <laughs> and they managed a few Nobels out of Cavendish under Rutherford's work-life balance approach long before that was a term. Critical mass, um, we like to think that's 15%. Business has already shown for women's concerns and questions and ideas to be heard. It needs to be uh, three-eighths, 37.5%. But I think the number is, um, shall we say, right for the wrong reason. That's where you need to be in a percolation threshold if you have a transport problem in, in condensed matter, electrical communication, heat communication. So if you've got the white ball, black ball world, the white balls don't know they're part of the world until you're at 15%. And so that is a different mechanism than just numbers. It really talks about contiguous information flow. And the nice thing about that is men and women can be part of that, whites and ethnic and racial minorities can be part of that. You need to be able to feel you can work at your best ability in your environment or you don't. And market strategies. We need to redirect our resources to encourage the most valued resource in the research enterprise, and that's the undergraduate student choosing their graduate program to look at the institutions that are in the 21st century. And to me, that means we need to out the toxic departments and groups. I want to create a faculty diversity index, and this is what it would look like. These are the 26 postdoctoral and postgraduate associates who've worked with me since 1990 at the Naval Research Laboratory, underlined if they're female. Ideally, you would then break this out in respect to race and ethnicity. And I've worked with 13 women and 13 men in a physical science discipline, so it can be done. Time's up. I want to quickly go through the, shall we say, the lexicon. You're only here because you're a woman. You only got that grant because you're black. You only won that award because you're Hispanic. Well, once you understand we overvalue men, women and men overvalue men, men accumulate advantage, women accumulate disadvantage, so the men are really here just because they're men. Preferential hiring, this whole quota nonsense, well, in the university and research world, at the deep end of the pool, it's been more than 90% white men. That's a quota. And since we've had in universities for a millennium, isn't a millennium of affirmative action for white men sufficient? Search committees need to search rather than just open envelopes. And people would like to see proactive strategies that are progressive, not punitive. And I often hear, I prefer carrots to sticks. Well, we're dealing with carnivores, and carrots are for vegetarians. <laughs> we only want the best candidate. Here puts this to the lie. The data from the College of Science at MIT. Pre-1971, when the feds went to the universities and said, if you do not bring women on your faculty, we'll withdraw your federal funds, MIT only had one to two women in their College of Science. External pressure, that number went up to sort of 16, and then fell flat for over 20 years until there was the internal pressure from the president, the dean, and the provost to hire women, and then it kicked up again. So in the absence of pressure, we don't identify women and minorities. We just find more white men. And Nancy Hopkins sat down and disaggregated how the women who were hired in this, so we said, 
20 plus years of 16 women in the College of Science, they were outperforming the men in terms of winning the major recognitions in science. And I list those there. And finally, choice versus decision. Many men and women who we'd most like to see in our universities and research enterprises are choosing to go somewhere else. Well, they're not choosing. They're making a decision because they don't see they can leave, lead the life they'd like to live. Thank you. There's so much energy in this room. I love it. Um, thank you for all of your amazing and different viewpoints. Um, and now I want to allow some time for questions. Neil, I do have a confession to make. My father-in-law invented the uh, implicit association test, uh, Anthony Greenwald. <laughs> uh, so I've heard a lot about it and read a lot about it. And I'll be waiting for his email. Yeah, so we'll have to set that up. But no, but, it, but I, the, what I wanted to open while you guys are getting the mic set up, one of the things that I think is interesting and has sort of risen to the top of these discussions is one of also time and place. I mean, because as you both have, have addressed, you know, Title IX now, Title IX 40 years ago. I mean, I think none of us would deny that women in particular, and there's also been shifts with men in terms of enrollment and our place in the professional arena in particular, which is where we are right now. Um, but I think the question that I would like to pose to you is, can policy influence cultural shift? Because we have to acknowledge there has been a cultural shift that has allowed for women to work in ways that we couldn't before or to be part of different fields. I mean, in the fact that it's acceptable now for men to stay at home with children or women to stay at home with children and becoming more so all the time. So the question I wanted to pose to both of you, we did not, by the way, plan this for like it's the two sides. <laughs> we were going to mix and mingle. We did downstairs. It was all fabulous. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I'm just curious in terms of um, bias and, uh, and, and cultural shifts towards bias. Can policy help with that, or is it not necessarily a need? What are other ways that we can address it is the question I wanted to ask. So, I mean, we could do one from each side. You guys can decide who wants to take the question. Well, I'll just go first. Sure. Since I pulled my microphone down, I'm all set. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very interesting question, and it's actually a big debate within social science. Um, I, I think the first thing we have to note is culture almost always has to be changing first before there's enough pressure on government to lead to changes. And that, that's what I think was important about the, the data that I put out about women's enrollment greatly increasing before Title IX. There already has to be that percolating up for people to push for that sort of change. Then the question is, well, does it help to accelerate that change if you have sort of uh, condoning rules for it from government. And there, there's a theory called contact theory, which I spent a lot of time on, not necessarily in, in when it comes to gender relations. but And contact theory stipulates one of the things you need for intergroup contact to work is for there to be some sort of official uh, imprimatur behind it. And I think that that's probably true, and I think that it helps to accelerate these things when you have some pronouncement that now we sort of officially believe in something. But you, if you look at the research on mainly racial integration in schools and elsewhere, you find that that sort of integration, especially if it is separated from choice, doesn't seem to lead to greater intergroup comedy. People aren't getting along better. They aren't truly integrated better. So I think there's a real limit based on the research on the effect of law versus what culture does. 
Adele or Deborah, would you like to? We probably both will, but I'll counter Neil's last point is that the American military integrated racially its forces when there was no cultural or societal lead on that. And that's because they saw you had to have, if you will, all of America represented in the military. And so you do have to, shall we say, have pressure, just as Nancy's data showed. Our normal search and identification protocols do not find the excellent other. We fall back on the status quo. Okay. Well, let's go to questions from the audience. Um, who would like to start? Okay, right here in the front row. You guys will have the mic. A question for Ms. Kimmel. Is there up-to-date data on pay equity or disparity in between female and male coaches at any level? Yes, um, I don't have that available to me, but there are pay disparities between male and female coaches. Um, not surprisingly, the male coaches are paid more, and this is a, a source of a problem. You'll see that there are lawsuits, not just under Title IX, but under the Equal Pay Act or Title VII, which covers employment discrimination. And this, there is a problem not just with the athletes and how they're treated, but also the coaches. In the back, yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Michael Bors. I'm with the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. I think it was Ms. Schaefer, although I might be wrong, who made the distinction in her presentation uh, between gender equality and gender parity. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that all four of our panelists are united in supporting gender equality. Um, that is the equal opportunity for both men and women uh, to enter whatever field, whatever major, etc. Um, but the interesting distinction I think is between is with regards to gender parity and so I'm I'm wondering uh, if Dr. Rollison or Ms. Kimmel um, could talk whether they view just gender equality or also gender parity that is you know 50 percent equality in every single field which I don't think uh, Mr. McClosey and Ms. Schaefer have as a goal but I wonder if you do. I'm all for educational and employment opportunity and not parity. So it's the equity in that level. But that steps aside from the individual versus, if you will, the large number situation. And that's where the statistics start to come in. And the reason we've not had much change in the STEM has been, shall we say, a language from the top that, well, it's the statistics of a small population. That woman didn't work well in this environment or that African-American wasn't working out in this department. But those days are over, except for you know, a very few disciplines like electrical engineering and physics. And so the statistics of the large population, which do hold out, are not holding out in terms of putting faculty in place who represent the female and ethnic and racial minority richness of PhDs we have. So that's the culture that needs to be beat. And at that point, then, it may look like um, statistical representation as opposed to 50-50 parity. Any other questions right now? I wanted to, to pose the question around uh, impact on men with Title IX, because we've talked a lot about the impacts on women and what it's meant for women in athletics and STEM and, and many other fields. But for men, what has it, has it done to change the educational landscape to improve or uh, 
well, you mentioned, for example, there's more women in veterinary sciences, there's more, uh, and I think, but you could also argue uh, male nurses may be trying to right. figure out how they gain more, again, the question of parity versus uh, equality. Um, so what is, what is the impact for better or for worse than for men? Well, one of, one of my big concerns with this whole conversation is the idea that the genders can't be different. Um, and that we can't um, accept the fact that men and women may have different interests. That doesn't mean that we can't encourage intellectual curiosity and um, you know, accelerating at any number, in any number of fields for men and for women. Um, but we do seem to be hyper-focused on the shortage of women. And as you mentioned, we are not, I have never seen a government report, for instance, on the shortage of male English majors or shortage of male psychology majors, the shortage of male nurses. Um, presumably, men are not going to some of these fields for the same reasons that um, Deborah is suggesting that they're not going into, women are not going into the sciences. And I think that there is, from a very early age now, concern that women and uh, that girls and boys are the same. Um, and sometimes I think it's to the detriment um, of our, what I think are our shared goals. Um, for instance, in recent months, there has been a campaign against a new line of Legos. Um, these Legos are pink and purple, and they're designed to be attractive to young girls who are interested in princesses and going to cafes and things, I suppose. Um, the problem with this is that it sort of overlooks what the larger goal of Legos is, which is to teach children about spatial reasoning, um, construction, how to build things. Um, and you know, sort of in this effort to make boys and girls the same, we're missing the larger benefit of Legos. Um, and I think that that's where this conversation goes awry, is that when we try to make boys and girls and men and women the same, um, we're looking at a very different world. And I think that sometimes it would be helpful if we stepped back and said, what would it look like if we, you know, if men and women were equally represented in all of these fields? If women were not in biology, but instead were in computer programming, how would that change um, the dynamic of, a, of an institution or of, of culture? And I believe actually College Board, it, which does a lot of the standardized testing, SATs and such, is getting ready to do a research project on this notion of do men and women's brains work differently? Do we are we attracted to different fields for more innate reasons, not necessarily social, um, social, social socialization or social reasons? So um, that I believe is forthcoming, just as a data point. But yeah, I'd, I'd like to make a comment on that. I don't think there's actually disagreement that men and women are different. I, I embrace my differences from men. Um, I, I don't think that that's really the issue. I think that misses the point. Um, just because men and women have differences doesn't mean that women should have fewer opportunities because of those differences. Mm -hmm. And you, um, one, of the, one of the cases that public justice worked on the, um, uh, against Brown University, which is considered a, a, a liberal bastion, um, it had cut its women's sports teams, two of its women's sports teams, and fought tooth and nail to um, correct the imbalances in the athletics department. And um, the court rejected Brown University's arguments and said that interest and ability rarely develop in a vacuum. They evolve as a function of opportunity and experience. And all we are asking for, we, we recognize that we're different, but we're just asking for the same opportunities.
I just want one little anecdote, but you don't want to hear from me, probably want to ask your own questions. But that raised an interesting question. I didn't talk about it, but recently there was the case of whether or not cheerleading should count toward your Title IX numbers in sports. And essentially what most, I would say, pro-Title IX groupings were saying was that cheerleading shouldn't count, and it got into a very convoluted definition of what constitutes sports. But the reality seemed to be that lots of women wanted to participate in cheerleading, but but for political reasons, or through government, we were saying, well, we're not going to count cheerleading in this way. And that, I think, was one way in which the desires of women were defeated, largely through Title IX. That wasn't the intent of Title IX, but that was the effect. Now, that's not system-wide or anything like that, but these are the kind of things that are important to look at as how Title IX is applied in reality. And I'll also echo, echo Adele, vive la différence. Uh, but I will point out that, uh, for instance, mathematics, which really is at our, if you will, prestige uh, pyramid of the you know, purest of the pure, and physics is a step down from that. Chemistry being less uh, theoretical is a step down from physics. Biology is you know, barely quantitative. And then, <laughs> and then there's social sciences, which is genuinely much harder than physical science. Um, math produces more women with PhDs than does physics. And women tune out of areas once they feel they're exclusionary rather than inclusionary. And the old look to your right, to your left, two of you will be gone after this freshman class drives people out of disciplines. And so as people restructure some of the intro courses in the areas that are women poor, they're getting better results. And Carnegie Mellon, which has led the innovation in computer science and information technology had been doing a great job in the 70s, 80s, 90s attracting women into comp sci. And all of a sudden they found those numbers plateauing and then going down. And they recognized it was when more students were declaring that as a major, so they had gotten exclusionary. And that's when the women dropped out. And the NSF funded somebody to try to encourage women undergraduates to identify comp sci as their major and felt perhaps they'd be more comfortable if they actually took a computer apart and saw that there really was no great mystery or magic. So they held a weekend workshop saying, you know, come take this computer apart, refurbish it, put it back together, and only men signed up. They ran it again and included a statement that these refurbished computers would then be sent to elementary and middle schools in socioeconomically disadvantaged school districts. And then the women signed up. So it really is, how do you present yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found the comments about just how information is presented up front and how it, again, goes back to the implicit bias or implicit association test of what are things that we're fed that impact, you know, the way we we think about things, which I think is another interesting discussion. Yes, one other question. using social science research is that we take what makes sense to us rather than try to synthesize a lot of it. And Diane Helpern has really done a very good synthesis of the research on cognitive development between men and women. And that research seems to argue that there's more similarities than differences. Um, and that culture does play an important part in that SAT scores and women have increased through the years. Um, and so um, there are changes. Spatial skills can be taught. And I think that example of get them motivated by some of their cultural influences that make them more empathetic, perhaps. Um, 
there isn't that much difference between empathy between men and women if you look at some of that scientific research. It's just that we try to exploit the parts that make the differences. So science is important, social sciences are important, but you have to look, know the research from many different avenues. And isn't it amusing that we consider the more civilized culture to be the more empathetic one? Well, let me say something about the spatial stuff because that, that's interesting. Because the things I've been reading on this from, again, generally pro-Title IX groups, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but they seem to acknowledge that, yes, one place where we find there is clearly a difference between men and women is in the processing of spatial relationships. And what they said is, but we can ameliorate this by doing special training for, for women or generally geared at women, but also men can use it. It's not exclusively that way, but there is a strong correlation. Well, what that suggests is, yes, we can change this, but people might still be making uncoerced decisions based on saying, look, maybe I am not as good at spatial relations. They probably don't put it that way, but they probably got a test score that indicated that. And they said, if I want to do it, I have to do this extra training. If someone else wants to do it, they don't. And so I'm not going to choose that. And what that means is we're not discriminating based on gender. It's that people are making rational decisions, even if it's about something that can be changed with additional training. And I think that's what's important, is understanding that people are making decisions freely and usually rationally and not in response to some discrimination. If unconsciousness is involved, it's not rational. So we're going to take one final question in the back. Sorry, it's the first hand I, I saw. <laughs> but they'll be available after, so they're not, they're not going to just be rooshed away. Go ahead. Hi, my name is uh, Phil Applebaum. I'm also with Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Uh, first of all, thank you all for coming. We really appreciate the uh, conversation. Um, first, I want to point out, um, Ms. Kimmel, the slide you showed about the actual rise in sports teams, I thought was somewhat misleading because you showed that um, Division One teams was down by 300, while Division Two was up by 300, somewhere around, the, around there, and Division Three was up by 500. Division one compared to Division two and three is very very different. Division one is all based closer. Um, will have can actually uh, uh, give grant scholarships to their athletes. Um, so you have students who perform in sports who can now attend school because they might be in a lower social economic class, but they can um, perform in their sports. So then they actually can attend college. Um, sports in Division two and three are not allowed to do so and are not nearly as popular. I mean, it's just it's just not not the same to me. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about how that correlation you think still leads to um, an increase in sports in colleges. And also, um, for Ms., was it Ms. Ralston or Dr. Ralston? It's Dr. Dr. I want to or as I like to say, that's Dr. Bitch to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, Dr. Ralston, um, the, it seemed like the main crux of your argument was that um, while women are receiving more PhDs now um, in, in school, they still aren't being hired um, in the STEM uh, fields. Is that correct? The only higher educational institution that hires at the production rate, if you will, the utilization of, of women PhDs is the two-year community colleges. Okay. So as you go up that prestige ladder, the number of women hired into the STEM departments goes down. Okay, so, so my, my question then is, I mean, shouldn't the 14th Amendment, you know, that, that forbids discrimination among gender lines be enough to, to fight that? Why do we also need Title IX to do so? I've already shown you that lawsuits punish the person uh, being excluded and nobody should really have to go that route. It is uh, draconian and brutal. The thing about Title IX is it forces the departments to use their higher cognitive functions. They can no longer stay with the same old, same old. And the same old, same old hires the same old, same old. 
So if you are requiring the universities and the departments to look at what they're doing with respect to what's our student population, well, it's 60% female in biology or chemistry, and yet we've only got 10% of our tenure track being female. That is a statistical imbalance. Then you look at, well, have we been hiring women over the last 10, 15 years? Every hire should be an opportunity to bring in the, shall we say, most enriching, including uh, type of person, somebody who's good at their science but also is addressing the needs of the students because a few women cannot mentor the entire student body and all of their male colleagues. They can't get any science done. There are just so many cultural factors here, but until the departments have to use their forebrains, things don't change. And Title IX is a beautiful way to get their attention. Okay, and so really quickly on the athletics, we're going to wrap it up here. And, and I think what piggybacks with that is sort of the financial aspect of how sports teams earn money for universities or not, and so you can address that. That's right. So even though there's been a bigger drop in the Division I schools and there's been the increase in Division II and III schools, this is not the fault of Title IX. I think it's largely what you're seeing is that the Division I schools have decided to eliminate what they would call non-revenue-generating sports like men's wrestling and men's gymnastics and men's tennis. I mean, I think the schools are making bad choices when they do that, but that's not my call to make. And they could be cutting. These, the D1 schools are the schools with the bigger football programs. And instead of cutting their bloated budgets for, with, for football and basketball, they decide to eliminate these non-revenue-generating sports. Now, that gets into another issue, which is that football and basketball actually are not revenue-generating for most schools. But these are schools that are making the choices to cut these men teams. It's not Title IX's fault. They have other ways to address it, as I pointed out. But overall, still, the number of men teams, the men's teams has increased after Title IX, not decreased. Okay, and Neil had one. Uh, yeah, I just want to hit the sports and the STEM parts real broadly, and maybe I'll get the last word, but it is Cato. I work here, so I should have that <laughs> uh, but, so I'm, but I'm actually going to agree with you on the sports part. I don't think most of the cuts in sports can be attributed to Title IX, actually. A lot of it is really bad budgeting by colleges. Mm-hmm. The University of Maryland is cutting sports because they decided they would expand their football stadium among other things, after they had one good year, it turns out that's all they were having. No one else was coming. They lost a lot of money. So we can't mainly blame this on Title IX. What we can say is maybe as a result of Title IX, even though the numbers have gone up, the raw numbers, the percentage of men who participate in intercollegiate sports has actually gone down a little since the 70s. Is that a function of Title IX? We don't know. But I think it's also misleading to say that, well, just because their numbers have expanded, we know Title IX isn't leading to decreases because numbers overall in enrollment have ballooned. Then for STEM, I think it's also important that we note that, yes, lots of women who get PhDs in STEM fields or master's degrees who study STEM fields don't end up going into academia. Some won't even go into STEM fields. They won't do STEM work. But Anthony Carnevale at Georgetown University, who studies the workforce, put out a report, oh, maybe three months ago, that said huge numbers of men who study STEM fields don't go into STEM work because they find there's money, more money to be made in the law and lots of other things. So the question then ultimately becomes, are, is what's happening a result of discrimination or people making free choices? And I don't think we have any proof that, broadly speaking, Underrepresentation of women in STEM or sports or anything else is the result of discrimination rather than people making free choices. Okay. 
Well, we still have lots of work to do, and uh, and if you want to learn more or to see the live, or not live, but recorded feed from the panel today, it will be on the Cato website mm -hmm. um, probably tomorrow or later today, hopefully. Or maybe no two days. I'm not... uh, maybe two days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, following this, we're going to be there's going to be a reception up the stairs, and our panelists will be there, so we can continue the lively discussion. But thank you so much for your participation. Uh, for being here and, uh, and your interest in the issue. So thanks.